0: My name is Colleen Johanson. Um, I'm a nurse. I work in a cardiac intensive care unit in St. Paul, Minnesota. And for the last 32 years or so, my husband and I have been going overseas to a variety of different countries doing education. One of the things that I do is teaching advanced cardiac life support or basic life support as appropriate to where we're going, and that's why they've asked me to come and talk about that here today. Some of the things that we'll talk about are different methods of teaching that seem to have worked over the last 30-some years in my experience. But I would also like you to share your experiences. Um, because everyone has a basket of knowledge that they've brought here, and it would be good if we could share that, share your experiences, and really learn from each other. So, the first thing that I would recommend people if you're going to a new place and your plan is to do some teaching, or even if it's not a new place, really get to know the the people, get to know the societal structure, get to know the culture of the hospital, which is one of the things that as a nurse I'm very aware of. A physician walking into a hospital has a certain rank. A nurse walking into a hospital does not. So you really have to, you know, kind of work with that a little bit. The first time I worked at Mbingo Hospital in Cameroon um, I offered to teach some things, they thought, well, maybe not. Um, and then in Kenya, when I was teaching some of those doctors and checking them off on their ACLS, they thought, well, maybe next time she comes back, maybe we'll let her do that. So it's a little bit different. You have to know this, the culture of the hospital. What position would you be in in that culture? Um especially when you're working with, you know, non-nurses as a nurse, that's something to, you know, really key into. Of course, if you wear a lab coat, that goes a long way. Um, But also when you're talking with the nurses themselves, how do they see themselves? How do you empower them in their hospital culture, which is something that's sometimes quite difficult to overcome. So... So get to know the area, get to know the societal culture, get to know the hospital culture. Don't necessarily go in and think, you know, I'm going to make big changes, I'm going to do this right thing. Be slow, take your time, um, and develop relationships. The other thing that has um, kind of related to some of the things that I've been hearing in the talks on short-term missions is to work alongside people who are already there, which, of course, that's what we do because we're working in hospitals, but also know who in that hospital would be doing something similar and always go to them and talk it over with them before it's even presented. For example, um, would it be the physician who's in charge of the family practice program in the hospital. Then talk with him about what he would like you to do, et cetera, if it would be the director of nursing, et cetera. So work with somebody there um, that's going to be there for doing follow-up, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later. So... um, who you teach depends on, you know, where you're going, of course, and and then the things that you're going to teach are going to really change drastically according to who it is you're going to be teaching. Some of the pl- people that I um, kind of zero in on are physicians, residents, OR staff, I think is incredibly important, um, ICU staff, newborn staff, those kinds of people who will be able to use this information the most effectively. And lastly, whenever you teach, you're teaching to teach. So identify people who are going to follow up, who are going to be there. Give them the tools necessary for them to teach when you're gone. And that's true with any teaching that you're going to be doing overseas or any work that you're going to be doing overseas. You want to leave something behind that's going to be useful beyond just what you're telling people at the time. So I have been teaching, um, heading up the Advanced Cardiac Life Support portion of the a CMDE conference, which alternates between Kenya and Thailand every year. This coming winter, it will be in Thailand. And so the people that I'm teaching at that location are um, missionary, physicians, nurses, dentists, um etc. Anyone who's interested in taking the course from a variety of different countries, they all come to this location for the course. So it's a it's a two-week course with a variety of things. I work mostly in the pre-course ACLS, BLS, teach some rhythms and twelve lead interpretation kinds of things throughout the two weeks, but they come here to get their CME for the for the next two years. So there's a lot of good teaching that goes on there, and then they go back to their countries. When I'm in a small hospital where I'm going to be teaching with doctors and I'm going to be teaching with other staff, I like to do it separately. I, 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 in the States, I'll have physicians in the class along with the nurses, et cetera, um, but over there, because of the culture, I like to separate them out. Um, there's a real fear of saying the wrong answer or looking bad in, in front of people. So if you do it colleague to colleague, it's a little bit easier for people to be participatory. So usually I'll do the physicians as a separate um, introduction. In Kenya at Tenwick Hospital, um, in this particular year, it was staff physicians as well as medical officers um, in in just kind of a large group. The last time I was at Tenwick, I did just the the residents in training to try to get them through. But if you're going to be doing training, even if you know who it is you're going to be training, it really changes according to where you are and who you're going to be talking to. So working with the nursing staff, it depends where they work. So are they in a high-risk area? Are they working in an OR? Are they working in a newborn nursery? Are they working in a place where you can have a cardiac arrest with reversible causes? And that's the key. Not only that, are they working in those areas, um, but you have to emphasize the part of ACLS that's within their control. So it's going to be things like um, looking for those reversible causes, looking for pre-arrest kinds of things. Um, and in, with nursing students, I just stick with basic life support. Uh, um, I think that that's the most important part about ACLS to begin with. Um, but but it's more something that they could use even in their home because it covers the choking child and things like that. So what to teach? Assessing the needs of the group that you're going to be teaching. So what is it they're going to be coming across that might actually have something that you might be able to um, work with? The last time in Kenya, I got a group of nurses together to talk about who were doing education for nurses. And I asked them, what are your needs? What, do you, what tools do you not have that you didn't know you would need when you got here? And the number one thing was how to teach critical thinking. In many of these countries, their educational system is based on memorization so they get a list of things they memorize it's totally different from where we're coming from so so doing assessments doing predictive thoughts about where is that taking this patient is kind of out of the realm of their of their previous education so teaching critical thinking and how do you do that and one of the ways is with case presentations, et cetera, where you get them thinking about not just the pathophys, but then, you know, how to take it a step beyond that, how to intervene. And one of the things that I really stress, is, especially with nurses, but also with residents, um, is to look for um Potential catastrophic events. So, to prevent catastrophic events. When people think of advanced cardiac life support, they think of CPR and shocking, right? But only a, one portion of it actually includes that. The rest of it is dealing with bradycardias, tachycardias, you know, shock states, those kinds of things before the arrest occurs and hopefully preventing the arrest from actually occurring. So uh, I do teach um, shock, what to look for. Um, One of the things that is a concept that, that takes some real critical thinking is the difference between right and left heart failure. What kinds of things cause left heart failure? What kinds of things cause right heart failure? What will your patient look like if they have one versus the other? Those kinds of things. And the treatments being totally different. So getting into that kind of thing as a kind of a building block towards treating um, shock. Airway support, of course, is is mandatory, and that's a big part of ACLS. Fluid resuscitation, even in the States, we don't do it as well as much as we should, um, So, you know, emphasizing that kind of thing, looking for reversible causes and intervening is really the bottom line. Other things that you need to teach before you can teach ACLS is you need to teach heart rhythms. And in some cases, you need to teach interpretation of 12 lead. So for those places that have monitoring, and most ORs, that I've worked at in Africa, Asia, and South America, have some monitors in the hospital, or they'll drag in a 12 lead and run off a quick 12 lead. So especially in the OR, they usually do have a monitor, don't always use it, but there's usually something there. Um, You can't do ACLS without a monitor, right? You can't treat a rhythm if you can't see what the rhythm is. So... So teaching ACLS should be restricted to those people who actually deal with rhythms, who have access to rhythms, who know rhythms, um, or at least have the algorithms on how to take care of them. All right, so um, the other thing you need to research in advance is what's available. For example, you you can teach BLS, without an AED. You can't certify BLS without an AED. But there are a lot of mission hospitals around the world that have an AED that's sitting in the closet. Why do you think it's sitting in the closet? You don't have to know how to use an AED. It tells you what to do. It's the language. They're in English, and the staff doesn't speak English. So... AED is meant for non-medical people, so it tells you every single step, every single thing to do. But if you don't understand what it's telling you to do, it's not going to be very useful. So there are ways to work around that. Uh, What kind of drugs do they have in their formulary? What's available? Um, Working together with... um, Head nurse in the ICU putting together a crash cart for the first time. You know, what kinds of things do you need on it? What do you need to have available? Because when they need to get a medication, that's in another building. You know, it might not even be open or available. So having things to treat an emergency when the emergency arises. Um, As I mentioned, AED. Some AEDs you can actually see the rhythm on, some you can't. So whether it can be used for ACLS depends on whether or not there's actually a rhythm that shows on the AED. Um, Do they have a ventilator? If you don't have a ventilator, you're not going to intubate, or you're not going to intubate for a long term anyway. You can beg for a while, but that's only going to last for just so long. Um, do they even have an Ambu bag? You don't need an Ambu bag. It's nice to have. Um, But what is actually better is if you just have the mask. Because most people don't know how to use an Ambu. So, or they don't know how to use it correctly. So a better thing is to just take the mask off of it, hold the mask on the face, and blow into the mask. It gives you some protection, it gives you a good, tight seal, um, so that actually works better. It's much more effective than trying to use a an Ambu bag if you're not used to doing that on a daily basis. What labs are available? Yes, sir? Do you find that culturally acceptable? I do. Um I think that it kind of has been a step forward towards having people be more willing to do it because before that it was mouth-to-mouth and no way they were going to do mouth-to-mouth and, you know, that's okay. That's their choice. In the U.S., you know, they're teaching to non-healthcare workers compression-only CPR, which is all better than doing nothing. Um, but that's a whole different situation. I mean, there's only so long you're going to be able to do that. It doesn't really work as well for kids who we know are mostly respiratory in the first place, etc. But having even just the the that mask between their mouth and the mouth is a little bit more encouraging than if you didn't have that. So. But, yeah, it's still a matter of choice if they're willing to do it or not. So I harp a lot on reversible causes, of course, because you can't, you know, once you get return of spontaneous circulation, get them to the cath lab and start your hypothermia and, you know, do PCI, et cetera. So you really have to look at who is it applicable to. And if you think about it, in a lot of cases, it's going to be things like pulses, electrical activity, it's going to be electrolyte imbalance, it's going to be a drug overdose, it's going to be maybe even a drug overdose that caused from our giving too much opiates to somebody who's crying in pain. It, but those that's okay. Those are going to be the reversible things that we're going to come across. It's not going to be, you know, the v arrest in most cases, and, you know, that's a whole nother, um story. But as I mentioned, the most important thing in ACLS is BLS. So if you can teach good BLS, um, that has the most research behind increased pace, patient survival all of the drugs and things that we throw in have not been proven to be effective i mean there there are things we do it gives us something to do in that that in between the 2 minutes of shocking etc keeps keeps us busy but it but they're not actually proven to be effective so Is the cause of the arrest reversible? Is is there an AED available or a defibrillator available? All kind of comes into that package. So, again, the first emphasis is on really recognizing pre-arrest states. Here we have a 28-year-old previously healthy school teacher with six weeks of progressive dyspnea on exertion. Um, now she's short of breath at rest and has paroxysmal, nocturnal dyspnea, and orthopnea. So for those non-alphabetized people, she's having trouble breathing. <laughs> <laughs> What's your differential? Let's throw them out there. Hmm? Asthma. Asthma. Heart failure, what kind? Hmm? Okay. Why left sided? Okay. Okay. What if I said she had a child seven weeks ago? Okay. <laughs> so, cardiomyopathy. She's in distress what do you want to do? How? Okay, what are you going to do? What about it? Okay, so you want to know what her SATs are. We don't have a SAT monitor. It didn't work anyway. There was one, but it didn't work. Okay. Give oxygen if you have it. Chest X-ray? Chest X-ray? Yep. Yeah. What, what medication do you have? Do you, do you have dobutamine? Do you have like they did not have dobutamine. Some some places have dopamine, but I haven't seen dobutamine very often. So, what do you want to know? Come on, nurses. What are the first thing you're going to do? Listen to her. Lungs. Listen to her lungs. Okay. Check, check Check her blood pressure for sure. You're gonna check vital signs while you're doing everything else. So her blood pressure is 60 over 40. Um, is she bleeding? Good question. She actually was GI bleeding, and she had petechial hemorrhage. Um, she was coughing up blood, so she was into the DIC stage. So, so we're we've got multi-system. Problems going on. You can give, her you gotta make give her fluids, absolutely. Um, they didn't have any kind of machine to give fluids, so I had to stand there and squeeze it, you know, for, for quite a while. Um, but it, the other thing is okay, so her lungs are wet, but we're giving her fluids. How do we know when enough is enough and too much is too much? Yes, that's right. No. But that's not a bad question. How can we check central venous pressure without invasive lines? Hmm? Ultrasound. Look at the IVC. If you look at the IVC with echo, you can calculate the amount of fluid. It's a very simple thing to do. Um... You can calculate according to does it collapse with with respiration and then give enough volume until you can see that that might become a problem. So you want to increase her right-sided pressures enough without impinging on her left-sided pressures. So, so you want to get her CVP approximately up to what? Or not go over what? At what point does it start to become a problem? So you could probably push her up towards 20 um, with careful monitoring of her blood pressure to make sure that that that's doing okay. But, right, it's going to be fluid resuscitation. Fluids, fluids are what she needs. Okay. Use of the appropriate technology. Find out what they have. This is actually the first monitored patient at the Shell Hospital in Ecuador where we brought some monitors down. And then it's not enough to just bring machinery. You've got to teach people how to use it. You have to make sure that there's biomedical people there or available somehow to maintain it because once you send a piece of equipment somewhere, it's yours for life. You are responsible for it for life, and you will hear about it anytime something doesn't go quite right with it. So anyway, um, use of available technology. I mentioned rhythm identification, extremely important in in some of these uh, pre-arrest kinds of states. So what do you think? Can any of you see this one? <coughs> It's a little bit hard, isn't it? Pardon me? Good question. It is first degree heart block. This is first degree heart block as seen with rheumatic heart disease. Very good. So, I've been teaching rhythms, and I do have a pretty systematic way to do it that I always leave with people wherever I go, if anyone's interested in that. You know, be sure to let me know. I'll be happy to send it to you. Um, That seems to be effective. Um, People have fun with it and learn from it. Um, Sometimes you have to go beyond the rhythm and and talk about 12 leads, but in this one it's the rhythm. You have a 52-year-old woman coming in with complaints of weakness. What is the rhythm? Okay, so I heard one over here. Okay. It is fast, that's for sure. Okay, this is my method for, this part of the method for doing rhythms. First thing is fast, slow, or normal. If there are less than three big boxes between the R waves, it's a tachycardia. Right, because 3 would be 100. So if they're less than 3, it's a tachycardia. If there's more than 5, it's a bradycardia. So fast, slow, or normal, it's fast. Regular or irregular? Irregular. irregular. Everyone agree? Okay, that kind of limits it. Next thing is look for the P waves. Is there a P for every QRS and a QRS for every P wave? No. In this part it's a little bit fast to see if there is but the main thing is that it is irregular. What you're seeing here are really the T waves. So you have an irregular tachycardia. This that is you can't see discernible P waves. If In this rhythm, if you think you see a P wave once in a while, if you don't see that in front of every QRS, it's not there. What you're seeing is part of the fibrillation wave. So this is atrial fibrillation. Why is that important for people to recognize? It's very common. Okay, it can lead to congestive heart failure, usually rate-related, for two different reasons. You lose your atrial kick... So you lose that forward flow from the atria, because the atria never contracts. So you lose that, which can be as much as 25% of your cardiac output. You also lose your AV synchrony. So when you have the the ventricles contracting, you can have retrograde flow. So now you've lost volume forward, and you have backward volume. So you can drop your um, blood pressure, drop your cardiac output. But the other thing is the high incidence of stroke with atrial fibrillation. And not every place has anticoagulation or can monitor anticoagulation. Um, but I do teach about CHADS score and, you know, and finding out what the risk for it is. In Madagascar, there's, there's just a ton of hypertension in very young people, a lot of strokes in very young people. So just recognizing that, rhythm, and knowing that it increases the risk for stroke, especially in people with hypertension, you might be a little bit more aggressive in trying to convert that rhythm. Where here we know in the States that rate control is, is statistically as um, effective as rhythm control. Um, but there, where you don't have Coumadin available, you know, you might need to be a little bit more aggressive in trying to get them out of that rhythm. Okay, Bangalore Evangelical Hospital in Gabon. This is actually the hospital that we started at 32 years ago. Um, I got, or we, my husband and I got uh, correspondence from one of the um, internists there who said she had a young man, 28-year-old guy, walk into the hospital with this rhythm. What do you think? Okay, I heard VTAC. How do you know? It's wide, it's regular. Okay, and if you look 12 lead wise, you know, look at your AVR is totally going the opposite direction that it would normally be going because the rhythm is coming from the bottom and going up. So what do you do? What would you do? I hear shock them. Okay, how would you shock him? Is he, talking? he is talking, he's walking, he's going to be pretty shocked if you shock him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> A little verse said even either before or after, so he forgets what you did to him. <laughs> <laughs> you know that actually could. That could work. A precordial thump is actually kind of back into ACLS with recurrent witnessed um, VTAC um possible. What else? If you were gonna if you had a defibrillator, which they didn't at the time, well they had one, it didn't work. So if they had a defibrillator, how would you do it? Synchronize, And that's the key. He's got a pulse. You need to do a synchronized cardioversion. You don't just shock him. You have to sync it. Okay, so she didn't have a defibrillator, as I mentioned. She did, however, have an AED stuck in a closet. So, and she just kind of had to override whatever it was saying. Now, you know, in AED, most AEDs will shock only V-Fib or, v- or VT. They assume you don't have a pulse. So they're assuming you don't have a pulse before you even put it on because that's what they're made for. They're made to put on to somebody who doesn't have a pulse. So it was what she had. It's what she used. Anything on the post AED cardioversion here that is of note? Yeah, which is not uncommon post uh, VT cardioversion, but yes, there there are some ST segment elevations. Anything else, anybody? Yeah yeah it it's slow the thing that really struck me was the long qt and does he have long qt syndrome that predisposed him to go into this arrhythmia or not it's it's really impossible to tell in the just right after cardioversion 12 lead cuz some of that will resolve um but that could have been his etiology you know whether it was from other medications or congenital long qt All right, 39 year old with CHF, um, an ejection fraction of 20% by echo. Blood pressure is 80 over 40, heart rate 170. Can you see that? What's the rhythm? Hmm? It is regular. It's fast. What about P waves? So we've got the fast, regular. Can you see P waves? Okay. How fast is it? 150. Yeah, almost exactly. So... What's your interpretation? Hmm? Yeah, that's the new term now. Yeah. We don't use PAT too much anymore. Um, so so she's in an SVT, right? It could be a sinus tack. We don't know. It's going so fast that we can't tell if there are P waves or not. It could actually be a sinus tack, right, at 150. That's certainly within reason. Um, Could be a junctional tach, could be a reentrant tachycardia, which whenever they're talking about SVT, that's usually what they're referring to is that reentrant tachycardia where ventricular depolarization will cause an atrial depolarization, which causes a ventricular depolarization, and it's stuck in this loop around the AV node, and the sinus node is totally left out of the picture. So if that's the case, what's the treatment? Yeah, we don't do so much carotid massage anymore. But but that's certainly what we used to do back in the tin days. Okay, vagal maneuvers. Um, what do you tell people when you're having them do vagal maneuvers? Yeah. Everybody says, bear down like you're having a bowel movement. That is universal. How many of those women laying in the bed surrounded by a bunch of strangers are going to bear on strong enough to have a bowel movement in the bed. Nobody's going to do that, which is one of the reasons it doesn't work very well. Because the thing with vagal maneuvers, it's really the coaching. You have to sit there and say, harder, 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 until their face is turning red. So some alternative things you could do is push on their stomach and say, push against my hand. But it's still the coaching. Harder, harder, harder. You can do better, you know. Or have them blow through a straw and pinch the straw. So, so just some alternatives to having a ball movement in the bed. Alright, so if we tried that and it didn't work, what's our next line of uh, treatment? How many of you have taken ACLS? Okay. Adenosine. Um, and, surprisingly, we didn't have any. <laughs> we usually carry some with us whenever we go, um, but but we didn't have any this time. But, um, but that would be the next thing, adenosine. Adenosine, the goal is it stops the heart so the sinus node can take over again. Um, so if it is a reentrant, that's the treatment of choice. Um, we actually contacted the hospital, not too far away. There's actually a heart hospital that are run um, by some Italian Catholic nuns, but they didn't have any either. We've since sent some to them, to both. Well, we sent it to Bonzo Hospital so they could make a trade, so they could both have some and have a good relationship anyway. So uh, we didn't have that. So the plan was we would do a cardioversion. So we dug out this old defibrillator out of behind the OR, and I got it working, I mean, short of testing that it would actually shock somebody. Um, But I was not comfortable with it at all, not knowing what would it really deliver, et cetera. So the plan was in the morning, we're going to do this. But in the meantime, we're just going to pray and give her ditch. And we didn't need to use a defibrillator. Thank you, Lord. She did actually convert. Okay, so when when I'm in Nepal, it's a little bit different. Because in Nepal, there's a lot more heart disease. A lot more heart disease. I don't know why, but there is. So what do you think of this one? Hmm? What's the rhythm? Fast, slow, or normal? Are there more than five boxes between? One, two, three. Nope, not quite. Okay, I'm hearing there's a heart block in there. Anyone agree? Okay, what kind? I heard a type 2. Any other? I heard a third. There aren't too many left, if you want to throw some more in there. (laughs) All right. The three heart blocks that are the high-degree heart blocks, so to speak. You know, the first one is just a long PR. Well, that doesn't fit because we obviously have P waves that don't have QRSs. So in type 2, there are two different kinds. Or in second degree, there are two two different types, type 1 and type 2. In the first one, the first thing you notice is always irregular. The PR gets longer and longer until one drops, so it's always irregular because of that dropped one. Well, this is not irregular, so it can't be type 1. In type 2, the thing that you notice is that wherever you have a P wave in front of a QRS, the PR always stays the same. You can have a whole bunch of P waves and then a QRS, right? But wherever you have a P wave right in front of a QRS, that PR will always match the PR where the P is in front of the QRS. So is that the case? Nope. Because here we've got a long here. We've got a little one there. So it's not staying the same. So your only thing that you're left with is third degree or complete heart block. All right. What do you think? Now we're beyond rhythm. Does anyone want to know a really quick and fun way to know axis deviation? Okay. Yes? (laughs) When you're looking at a 12-lead, and, you know, if this isn't important to you, don't even listen. When you're looking at a 12 lead, look at lead 1 and see, is it right side up or upside down? It's mostly above the isoelectric line. Okay, look at AVF. Is it mostly above or below? It's mostly below. Okay, so the hand that I have up is my left. This is a left axis deviation. It won't give you the degree of axis, as my husband, the cardiologist, would want to know, but it'll put it in the quadrant for you. It's especially useful if you're looking at, is this ectopy or aberrancy? Looking at the vector can really be useful, looking at the axis. Okay, so anyway, what do you see there that looks abnormal? And the thumb thing works for all four vectors, of course. Well, the thing that struck me right away is this. And you probably see a bunch of that. So we have ST segment elevation in V1, 2, and 3. This is a STEMI. Not something you expect to see overseas. Something you expect to see on a daily basis here. Here's another one, a little more significant. So actually, in Nepal, at Gangalo Hospital, they have a heart hospital in Kathmandu that um, is run by um, Nepali physicians who work there part-time, volunteer, and then have their own practice in their off hours. They have a cath lab, um, they do PCI, not as not as much as we do. They do a lot of balloon valvuloplasty, which is why we got involved with them because we're starting a project to do that for rheumatic heart disease in Africa. Um, but so you know, my husband kind of trades skills with them. You know, I'll I'll do these PCIs with you, and you show me a few more balloon valvuloplasties. But. So, how to teach. The first thing is to go prepared. Know what you're talking about. Know who you're talking to. Know what their needs are and what things they have available to them. Um, But do it in a humble way. Do it in a way that they know you're there to give a little bit of knowledge that you have, but you're also there to gather knowledge from them. Okay? So you're coming alongside, you're sharing, you want to learn some of the things that they know that you don't, you want to tell them some of the things that you know that maybe they don't. So, you know, it's a two-way street. And education is always that way, or it should always be that way. Um, And, again, you know, be humble and pray. Make all your preparations, and then when you get there, be prepared to throw it all away. Um, Because, you know, we make plans and God laughs. I know you've heard that before. Um, But, you know, you've got to be flexible. You've got to go with what you find once you get there. Um, Proven methods of education, I mentioned that a lot of places they don't have the critical thinking, so you really have to kind of start there. Make it fun, make it hands-on, make it experiential, all the things that you've been hearing in a lot of the breakouts today. Um, I I like to use a lot of games, and then at the end of the day certificates are very important. So you know, and don't think that you're gonna go there and find some nice paper to print them up with. Come with it, so design your certificates that you're gonna pass out um, but make your make your teaching relevant to where they are. Do the case studies that would actually be relevant for where they are. Um, I'm running a little bit short on time, so we're not going to be able to actually do this, but what do you think? Okay, um, I can kind of see that a little bit. It's not quite enough difference in the height um, to qualify for the torsades and, and or polymorphic VT torsades. You have to have long QT before the event, but certainly it is ventricular tachycardia. Um, Post cardioversion, this is significant for. Yeah, it's got those funny SD segment elevations and loopy T-waves. That's Brugada syndrome. I only put that in because it's specific to an area. If you're teaching in Southeast Asia or if you're working in the U.S. with um, an immigrant population, this might be something that would be important. But if you're in the middle of Africa, it's probably not going to be as pertinent to them. So find out what's there that could actually be useful. The 12 lead changes with Chagas disease that you might teach in South America is not going to be useful in Africa. Things like that. One of the interesting things about um, Brigada, it, it is... Um, in the young male population where it turns out, where it happens. It happens in their sleep frequently. Um, And so there was the idea that if they dressed in women's clothes when they went to bed, then that spirit probably wouldn't um, (laughs) attack them. But maybe sometimes it worked, maybe it didn't. Okay. I'm going to have to move along here. Just some of the other things that are useful in teaching, things that are easy to do. How many of you do pulsus paradoxus? How many of you know what that is? You probably have to be over 40. Okay, so it's a way to actually assess cardiac tamponade um by using a simple blood pressure cuff and a stethoscope and all you have to do is you check the blood pressure and you know how the sounds will come and go come and go come and go come and go and then they'll leave for a little while and then they'll come back again will that difference between where you lose the sound to where it comes back again. If it's greater than 10 millimeters of mercury, that's significant. So it's something simple that anyone can do at the bedside. You know, if, if the, your nurses are trying to decide, well, should I call them to do the echo in the middle of the night? You could just have them check that and see you know, what that number is. Other things can make the number high, like advanced pregnancy, things that um, will change your inner thoracic pressures, but it's just a quick little thing to teach people. Um, electrical alternans, where the QRSs get taller and shorter, also associated with tamponade, but we're going to move right along. Okay. Well, we can do this one. It's fun. 20-year-old woman with chest pain for two weeks. What do you see? Okay, how do you know? Okay, so you have diffuse ST segment elevation. When you want to pass those around? <laughs> yeah. For you. yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, normally I do this as a game, and I throw them out as people make answers to the questions, but we really don't have time to do that. But, okay, so pericarditis, ST segment elevation, that doesn't follow the path of a coronary artery. It's just kind of all over the place, no reciprocal changes. The other thing that I wanted you to notice is the PR segment depression. When you see PR segment depression or the PR that goes below the isoelectric line, it's pericardial injury or disease. Always, always, always. can be post open heart, um, but if you ever see that, it's really a cool thing to um, bring to someone's attention that this is probably what's going on. Okay. So I spoke about certificates. So I've designed a few certificates over the years. In areas where I'm teaching ACLS for ACLS and actually get permission from the American Heart Association to do that and pass out cards, I will do that, but only if it's appropriate. For example, at the CMDE conference where I teach ACLS, it's for certification so that when those um, docs or dentists are stateside and they want to work for a while, they have to have current um, certification, so that's what we provide for them. In some of their countries, they're required to have current certification, so that's what we are done. But then we run through the whole system. We don't take any shortcuts. Um, They have to pass exactly the same kinds of tests. Um, But if I'm not doing it for cards, if I'm not doing it for American Heart, I make sure that I uh, bring out enough fancy paper to make beautiful certificates that I can put their name on, the name of the hospital, where the class was, you know, all that kind of stuff to make it really official so they're hanging up in their homes. Um, but everybody loves those certificates. It's just really fun for them to have. So, okay. So why teach? That's the final question. Why teach this advanced cardiac life support in a in an area of the con- of the world that doesn't have all this stuff? Well, it's not just for the people whose lives you directly affect. And there have been many. Um, that we find out about later. For example, in Madagascar, shortly after I did BLS for, um, for the nurses there, they resuscitated two babies um, post-c-section who they would not have resuscitated previously. There is a sense in many places, even amongst Christians, of fatalism. Um, because in so many Areas there's so little they can do. Um, So it just kind of becomes the norm that a certain percentage of these babies are going to die. And that it doesn't have to happen. And so that was one case. Another one was a woman who went into a PEA arrest, pulsus electrical activity arrest, um, during a C section. Um, And before the doc even had time to see, Say what to do. The OR staff had given her Epi and we're giving her fluids and you know, it, it's really gratifying when you see that catch in those situations where it's totally reversible. But it's not just for the people that you save. It's for the people you empower. So that they can then teach others and they can feel in control of it. You're handing it off them um, for, for them to carry on from there so any other questions did the chocolates make it all the way around yet well you'll have to stay then <laughs> any questions yes Yeah, they don't provide anything. I have these, um oh, I had them on another picture. Oh, here, you can see some. I have inflatable mannequins so that they can fit in the suitcase really well, and that's the best way to do it. You can buy them um, through any of the places that um, distribute AHA equipment. And they're the ones that are made for people who do, do it at home, so it comes with a CD that you play on the television. I think it's called Friends and Family, um, and it's a box, and it has just the inflatable mannequin in it and a little booklet and stuff, so I just um, buy those. They have, they're, yeah, they're $39 or something like that, where if you had the real mannequins, not only could you not carry that with you, especially on the current restrictions on the airlines, um, but those things cost hundreds. So, and then, you know, I can leave some, too, in places, so. That's the other thing. You know how hospitals always, you know, is a one-time thing and you just throw them away when everyone's discharged? Um, so I save them. And then whenever I'm going to teach a class, I always leave everything. So all the airway stuff I bring with, you know, I always leave. Um, the defibrillators that I have, um, I purchased through CMDE. So, I mean, I bought them, but they paid for them. So, I, they're refurbished, um, I use the little zoles, because they're really lightweight, I can fit it in my suitcase, you know, no problem, um, but, and those I always take, of course, to do CMDE, but I wouldn't necessarily take them anywhere I go because if they don't have one already there, I'm not going to teach that. And if I am going to teach that, I want to use what they have available. So. Good questions. Any other questions? Um, I have I have a PowerPoint presentation that I use. Um, I teach that also here in the states at some of the community colleges and hospitals and things. And I work for the um, emergency medical department at my hospital as well as in the ICU and do some teaching there. Um, but if you'd be interested in that, I can take your contact and get that to you if it would be useful. Okay, thank you.